On this episode of Theology for the People, I speak with Dan Murata. Dan is a pastor and an author based in Virginia. His recent book is called Liturgy in the Wilderness, and it is on the topic of the Lord's Prayer. In this episode, we discuss prayer, specifically the question of if the Lord's Prayer was meant to be repeated by believers throughout history, or if it was intended to be a model of extemporaneous prayer. We also discuss the content of the Lord's Prayer and how it can help shape us as believers today. Here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. I'm joined today by Dan Murata. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Good to be with you. So, Dan, I got to know about you because of a book you recently wrote, and we're going to be talking about some of those issues from the book, but maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about, and about the book that you wrote. Sure thing. So I am married to my wife, Rachel. Together we have four kids, two girls and two boys, ages 11, 10, uh, 6, and 4. And I, my wife and I like to tell people we're not actually that organized. That is a false image of our family. Things are actually pretty chaotic at home, but we appear organized from a distance. Our, our little family lives in Richmond, Virginia. We moved here back in 2016 in order to plant a new church, Redeemer Anglican Church. So I serve as the rector, which is kind of this old, ancient, dusty word for lead pastor. And, and I, I am an Anglican priest in the global Anglican communion. And so we've been here for a little over six years and the, the church is growing and we're really thankful for that. It's just such an honor to see the way the gospel is changing and transforming people's lives. And this book called Liturgy in the Wilderness, How the Lord's Prayer Shapes the Imagination of the Church in the Secular Age. It's, it's a bit autobiographical. It, it's a book that came out of the way that God has used some of the ancient practices of the church, in particular, regularly praying the Lord's Prayer to change and shape me, and then also ways in which I've seen that change and shape people's lives within our, within our church. And so what I do in the book is I sort of kind of tee up, you know, Hey, here's what the Lord's prayer is. And here's why it's so important in the life of a Christ follower. And then go through each stanza of the Lord's prayer and kind of unpack all of the theological riches and goodness that is buried within it. The Lord's prayer is kind of like, I mean, I sort of joke that it's kind of like the wardrobe that leads into America. It's like bigger on the inside than it is. Side. There's mm. a lot there. And so, yeah, I could say more about it, but that's, that's what the book's about. Cool. So is your background in Anglicanism or is it something that you came into later? Yeah. Fair question. So not at all. I did not grow up with this. I, I, I'm sort of a denominational mutt. I grew up in a, in a PCA Presbyterian church in America church and kind of really came to faith through a ministry called Young Life, which is kind of this non-denominational outreach ministry to high school students. My kids are. And, yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's fantastic. So when I was in college, I worshiped in a, a multi-racial, like Pentecostal church. Services were like three hours long. It was crazy. And, and then during my time in seminary, I was part of an Acts 29 church. It was sort of like leaned Reformed Baptist, I guess you might say. And then right around 2014, we sort of tripped and stumbled our way into the Anglican communion. And that's where we are now. I, I'm, I'm, I'd like to tell people I'm not a fan of waving denominational banners. I've, everyone got to serve somewhere. And so this is the place that we are serving. And it seems like a good fit thus far. We're glad to be in it. But I've benefited from all of those different churches and ministries over the That's years. cool. 
Yeah, and we were talking beforehand. You were saying that you studied here in Colorado, where I'm based. Yes, sir. Yeah, did an MDiv out at Denver Seminary, and so our family had two two good years not living in Virginia, being out in the Mountain West. And it's so funny. It was Nick. It was a difference. It was it was more of a cultural adjustment than I anticipated. You know, if my wife and I will say that if if we had done seminary, you know, in a different country, we would have been ready for culture shock. We would have been ready to, you know, all right, things are going to be different and you got to adjust and you got to kind of, you know, try to fit in. But the move from Virginia to Denver was just more of a culture shock than we anticipated. People's priorities are different. The rhythms and cadences of life are different. And yeah, that was, yeah, that's really, <laughs> that interesting. was a shock to us. I mean, so my listeners, and I, and I think you two know now that I, I've spent, you know, most of my adult life until I moved back to Colorado. I grew up in Colorado, moved back to my moved to Europe for 10 years and lived in Hungary. And that was where I spent my entire adult life. And so I kind of got to know the idea of culture kind of, you stumble into it, right? Because you make mistakes or you notice things that other people do that seem weird to you. And that's kind of how you interact with culture. But I, I remember moving back, you know, and having kids who had grown up only in Hungary and, you know, running into some more of these cultural things and, and realizing, becoming more aware of, you know, the cultural uniqueness of the U.S. And another thing, you know, I work with some people a lot in California, Southern California. And even to me, I always kind of thought, you know, Colorado, California is kind of that Western U.S., all kind of homogenous. And no, there are some things that are very unique about Southern California in particular and, and Colorado that I've just, be, I've become more aware of them through working with people. So yeah, I'd be curious. I, I actually often said this to people. I said that, you know, I feel like you could drop me out of a helicopter in the middle of like Russia or Eastern Europe and I would feel right at home. Whereas oh. I think that if you drop me out of like a helicopter in the American South, I think that I would feel totally lost and disoriented. <laughs> like it would be more of a culture shock. But wow. what do you think about like, so tell us your cultural yeah. observations about Colorado. No, that's so interesting. Yeah. And this is, this is good for you and I to be talking because I'm probably the opposite. I mean, you drop me in the American South and I'm like, all right, let's, shrimp and grits, let's go. If you drop me in, in Russia, I wouldn't know how, I wouldn't know what to do. You know, Nick, what, one of the things, one of the things that I learned from just that, you know, that small move across the country from Virginia to Denver was that I, and I think this is probably true of most people and, and especially of, of pastors, but I think I'm, I'm better equipped to minister in certain cult cultural contexts than I am in others. And I'll never forget the moment that that crystallized for me. I was, I was living in Denver. I was a pastoral intern at our church and I, a younger guy in the church asked to meet with me. He wasn't asking for counseling per se, but he was going through a hard time and he wanted to meet with a pastor and talk. And so he and I went out for a cup of coffee together and we sat down and, and I just kind of asked him, you know, Hey, what's, what's going on? And he starts to, you know, pour out this really sad story about how he's estranged from his wife and he hasn't seen his kid in months. And he's just so broken up about the way that marriage and family life has just, you know, fallen apart. And as he's telling me all this, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what happened? And I'm imagining something catastrophic, you know, it must've been an affair or maybe, you know, substance abuse or so something has happened. And, and when I ask him what happened, his, his, I'll never forget his response. He just kind of sighed and he got this kind of glazed, misty look in his eye. And he said, 
man, just a lot of good powder days last year. <laughs> and I was new enough to, you know, living in the state of Colorado that I didn't know what he meant. And so I kind of oh, had wow. to say, what, what are you talking about? And he went on to talk about how his love for snowboarding had just eroded his marriage and his family life to the point where he wasn't living with his wife and his child anymore. And for, so this, this is a little bit embarrassing. This is like how bad of a pastor I am. Like I knew in that moment, I was not cut out to be a good pastor in Colorado because I'm like an East coast, you know, like responsibility, hard work. Let's go to grad school. Let's do the job. Let's career advance all those things. And like, if you put me in a room with a lawyer who's working 80 hours a week and making a mess of his life, I kind of know what to do. I'm like, yeah. hey, at the same level, me too. Now together, let's go to the cross because we're both, you know, struggle with workaholism and, you know, Christ will give us rest. Um, if you put me, you know, with who's, gosh, just like so driven, like I kind of know what to do with them. If you put me with someone who just struggles with recreating too much, <laughs> Yeah. I just sat at the table and I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, man. I just kind of think you're being stupid. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to speak the gospel into the situation. Yeah. Just think you need to grow up. Yeah. And so I just, I mean, it's kind of a dumb story, but I realized in that moment, oh, I'm, I, I, I think, I think in order to shepherd well, there has to be some part of you that empathizes with the idols that are making a mess of people's lives. Sure. It's like, I grew up in Charlottesville. It's a university town. Academia is king there. And so when I meet with the guy who's getting a PhD in philosophy and it's like destroying his life because he's, he's just so desperately needs to be the smartest person in the room, there's part of my heart that empathizes that I can go, hey, me too. Now together, let's go to the cross. And, you know, I spent, I did a res pastoral residency in DC. Everyone in DC is trying to make an impact. Like if, if the life, if the intellect is the, is the idol of Charlottesville, you know, influence is the idol of, of DC. Hmm. And I can sit with a DC person who's grinding it out, you know, just trying to change the world. And at some, some part of my heart can say me too. Now together, let's go to the cross in Denver. I was like, nope, that's just you, man. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> that's hilarious. I, I had a great powder day yesterday, by the way, but I'm making sure it doesn't ruin my marriage. So <laughs> See, yeah. you're a good man. You're such a good Colorado pastor. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Let's talk about your book. Now your, your book is about the Lord's prayer. And I like some of the things that I, I read in a write up about it, which was talking about how the Lord's prayer is essentially, it's like dripping water that can wear away granite. It's planting seeds that are going to bear fruit later on. So Tell us, first of all, the Lord's Prayer, how is it to be used, in your opinion, in the life of a believer and in the life of a church? Yeah. So there's one of the oldest documents that the church has, aside from the Bible, would be called the Didache. It's sort of an ancient Christian catechism written before 300 AD. And in it, it describes that it's normative for a Christian to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and, and evening. And from that, it, we, can, we can assume that, you know, within just a couple hundred years of the early church being established, it had already become the norm that your average Christian is praying the Lord's Prayer at least three times daily. And that's in addition to praying it whenever the church comes together for worship on Sunday. So 
you asked about kind of how is it used in the personal and then how is it used in the church? You know, so in one's personal life, you might say that the Lord's Prayer gives structure to the day. It's how we begin the day. It's kind of what we do when we pause in the middle to remember the Lord. And it's how we end our days. And in the life of the church, it's, it's part of that anchor on Sunday. It's part of a normal Sunday practice. Or if you want to use like a word like liturgy, which I know is not a word that everybody uses, but um, if you want to use a newer word, you could say rhythm. Like part of your Sunday rhythm for worship gathering would be praying the Lord's Prayer together. And so I'm sharing that with you, Nick, N- not as, you know, hey, this is Dan's opinion, but this has been the practice of the church throughout most of church history, like most Christians and most times in most places have used the Lord's Prayer in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. I want to ask you the next question. Like, what about those who would say that the Lord's Prayer isn't necessarily something that should be prayed in repetition, like recited, mm-hmm. if you will, but rather Jesus's intention with the Lord's Prayer was to give us a model of how to pray, not it's not necessarily what to pray. And they mm. might they might point out that in like Matthew 6, verse 7, Jesus is instructing his disciples how to pray. And he's saying, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And then he mm-hmm. explains, they think they'll be heard for their many words. And he gives a relatively short prayer. Mm-hmm. So some people, though, they would point out, you know, this idea of empty phrases. And they might say, well, do you think that that by praying this same prayer three times daily, for example... Do, do you think that that is just like, become, it becomes an empty phrase that you're just repeating? Gosh, that's, I'm so glad you asked that because I, I do think, Nick, I think you're putting your finger on one of the primary reasons why a lot of people who believe the gospel and have their hope set on the risen Christ do not pray the Lord's Prayer. It's like, it's what you just said. So I think first off, we have to acknowledge that, yes, it absolutely can become a heap of empty phrases to people. I mean, as as with most things, it kind of all depends on how you use it, right? So, you know, if you think about prayer as, you know, communion with God, or even, even, even more simple than that, communication with God, striking up a conversation with God, we all know from our human conversations that some conversations can be rich with meaning and significance and sincerity and other conversations can just kind of be perfunctory right Mm -hmm. and even if some of the words are the same the heart posture behind those words can be very different and so i i lead a liturgical i mean i lead an anglican parish it's a liturgical church we pray the lord's prayer every week and i certainly have lots of people in our parish who are a bit resistant to the idea of praying the same liturgy every week and you know praying the lord's prayer every week And one of the things that we talk about is the problem that they're experiencing is not actually a problem with the words of the Lord's Prayer. It's not like the words stopped being true or even that the words stopped being powerful. It's that our heart posture has a problem and we have a hard time engaging it. We have a hard time praying it sincerely. Like I just think about the phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I think it's it's Adolf Huxley, the guy who wrote Brave New World who says, my kingdom go is the necessary corollary of thy kingdom come. Mm. And I don't know about you, but like, that's just not the posture of my heart next days. <laughs> so it's hard for me to pray thy kingdom come with genuine sincerity because 
what I actually want most of the time is my kingdom, not not God's. And so, uh, so I, I guess maybe in response to the question you're asking, I would say, well, one of the first problems would be just, or one of the first issues would just be locating the problem. Is the problem with the Lord's prayer or is the problem with the posture of my heart? And I would just confess to you and to anyone who's listening, at least for me, the problem is most of the time with my own heart, not with the Lord's prayer. And then maybe a second, the second half of that answer might go something like, I think it's easy sometimes to read the Bible and to just kind of us to, to fill in the gaps in the narrative with our own cultural experiences and expectations. So when we read the gospel narratives of the interactions of Jesus and his disciples, we tend to assume that, you know, their lives were probably, you know, as these first Christians structured much like our own, forgetting how deeply liturgical the life of a first century Jewish person would be. And, you know, for a first century Jewish person, especially for anyone who's styling themselves as a rabbi or a disciple of a rabbi, I mean, you're going to have large portions of the Torah memorized. You're going to be reciting the Psalms through on a regular basis from memory. Liturgical prayer, liturgical worship, that is like, it's just normal. And so when Jesus, in response to the disciples' questions, Lord, teach us to pray, gives them a liturgy, like, hey, when you pray, pray like this, that wouldn't be unexpected. That's very much in the norm because it's already just such a deeply liturgical society. And that's hard for us because most of us tend to, we don't have formalized liturgies in the same way. Most of our liturgies tend to be informal, unconscious. I'm not saying we don't have habits and rhythms. We absolutely do. We just didn't choose them and they're yeah. usually just not shaped by God's word. Okay. So do you think yeah. there are any benefits to free form extemporaneous, or maybe you would call it like from the heart prayer versus reading written prayers? Like, can you, can you just think through with us and weigh out the pros and cons of both? Because I'd like to hear even from you, like, what do you think are the potential detriments to, you know, reading written prayers and, but also maybe what are the potential downsides of, you know, extemporaneous prayer as the only form of prayer? Sure. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really good question, Nick. So let me first, I'll just start by dignifying and affirming the value of extemporaneous prayer. I pray extemporaneously every day. I teach my kids to we do so as a church staff and as like, like there's extemporaneous prayer, like big, two big thumbs up. Yes, absolutely. Huge, important role in the life of a believer. If you're looking for a metaphor or analogy, you could think about liturgical prayer as sheet music or maybe learning the scales on a guitar or a piano. When you first learn how to play a musical instrument, you don't begin by jamming. You begin by playing music somebody else has written. And it teaches you the instrument, it teaches you how to play. But maturity as a musician is being able to go off script in a way that is beautiful and good and creative. And, you know, the best musicians write their own music. They, they create music. And I don't want to stretch that metaphor too far, but I think you could, you could probably say the same for the average follower of Jesus, that liturgy like, I mean, a, a short, simple liturgy like the Lord's Prayer is a way of beginning to learn how to pray. 
these are the basics. This is what it means to commune with God in prayer. And then from there, we can begin to be extemporaneous and kind of branch out. I think one of the dangers about extemporaneous prayer is that we start with it too soon. We, a lot of us begin with extemporaneous prayer and we can, gosh, it's, it's an ax. It's the, all the dangers here are accidental dangers. Nobody actually sets out to do these things on purpose, but we, we end up thinking that what we feel inside of ourselves is the most important thing about prayer. And for some of us, we can end up almost like misidentifying our internal feelings as like prayer, like that's what it is. So prayer is what I feel on the inside or prayer is expressing what I feel on the inside to God. And I think that's really dangerous for a couple of different reasons. I mean, one of them is that it's, it's just profoundly unbiblical. I mean, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. God's people have always prayed the Psalms and start with the idea that prayer is just expressing your own internal feelings. Like that has its roots in expressive individualism, which had its roots in the enlightenment. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, that's a very new idea but in let me the jump, history of the church. Let me jump in real quick and then just ask you, I mean, some people sure. would push back against that, what you're saying right now. And they they would use the Psalms to push back and say, well, isn't that exactly what David's doing? He's kind of like laying out these feelings, some of which may not even be in line with God's will or God's heart, right? Like um, a lot of wild stuff in the Psalms. Yeah. And so, and so, I mean, isn't the example of the Psalms rather that we should be just kind of pouring it all out and laying it out there before the Lord? Mm -hmm. What would you say to that? Yeah. Well, gosh, that's great. And I would say, you know, the, the kind of person who would say, well, I, I want to pray the way David did, you know, David writes these Psalms. He's pouring out his heart. He is expressing his inner feelings to God. And I want to do the same thing. To do that, gosh, I don't want to offend anybody who's listening here, but I would want to very gently say, you're not David and, and you're not an author of scripture. And so to begin praying by immediately putting yourself on level with an author of scripture, to me, just sounds incredibly arrogant. Like that's just, I mean, not intentionally so, but it's just, it's to think, well, I can just begin at the top. It's like, you know, I, every, every night before I put my six-year-old son to bed, he and I play a quick game to three on his little bas Nerf basketball hoop that he has hanging over his door. And he asked me almost every night, which NBA team he can play for when he's a grown-up. And you know, I love my son. I've got a lot of confidence in him, but he's not playing in the NBA when he's you older, don't think so? right? Because okay. he has my genes. It's not yeah. going to happen. But, I, but his instinct is to start at the top, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's six years old. He's playing ball. Well, how, you know, when do you think I'm going to be the best? And it's like, when we start with prayer, coming with a posture of humility, none of us should assume that we're good at praying or that we you know, automatically are given, just, just like none of us should assume we're good at speaking. I mean, little kids aren't born knowing how to talk. Learning how to communicate is a learned, habitualized practice. And learning to talk, to talk to God isn't any different. We don't start off knowing how to pray. We have, that's why I mean, like, that's why the disciples have to go to Jesus. Like Peter has to say to Jesus, Lord, teach me to pray. Sure. And I would just suggest all of us should adopt the same humility as the disciples. We shouldn't assume we know how. We need to ask Jesus for help. 
It's a good analogy to say, like, like you're saying with sheet music versus jam sessions. You know, I was thinking even like if you go and think about like the Billy Graham revivalist method, like so they would do this thing. But then, you know what they often do is they'll have a written out prayer that they lead people and like repeat after me. And even that is an example of saying like, here's a model for how to pray because we, we know that you don't just come out of the womb knowing how to pray right? That here's a model of how to pray, the right things to say, the right posture to have. So that's an interesting analogy you use there. Now, just shifting gears to talking a little bit more about your book. So one of the things you say in your book, you say that, you, that humanity was born in a garden and ends in a city, but in between lies the wilderness. So what does that mean? Maybe you could expound on that a little bit. Sure. So what I'm attempting to draw out is, is the wilderness theme that runs throughout scripture. So one of the things that you could say is that wilderness is paradigmatic for the people of God. And by that, I mean, it's, it's the defining paradigm. It's the context for God's people. And it takes a number of shapes through the biblical story. I mean, there's from, from Abraham leaving Ur to go and follow the call of God, not knowing where he's going to God's people being enslaved in Egypt, to God's people in a literal physical wilderness during the 40 years in between Egypt and the promised land of Canaan, to the corruption of the nation of Israel uh, is, you know, kind of becomes a form of wilderness. And then the exile in Babylon is another form of, like it just, the wilderness themes just kind of keep rolling over and over. And by the time you get the New Testament, I mean, God's people are being oppressed by the Roman empire and then the early church also endures this kind of wilderness season as they endure persecution, some from the Jews and also from the Romans. And so the idea is that God's people are, are, are never really out of the wilderness. And if you, if I could get, I know this podcast is called Theology for the People. If I could get just a bit more theological for a moment, one of the ways that God's people have always conceived of themselves in the church is we look back to the Exodus story, which was the formative identifying narrative for the Jewish people, where they're enslaved in Egypt, God sets them free, they cross through the water of the Red Sea, they enter the wilderness, and they're on their way to the promised land. And what happens in the wilderness? That's where they're given the law, and that's where they learn to obey God. It's also where they learn to depend on God. That's where they're given manna and quail. And so they're, they're dependent on God's provision, and they're learning God's law. They're learning to exist as God's people. And if you fast forward to our age, the church, you might look at that narrative and, and the arc of that story and apply it, and, and really, or maybe it doesn't or not apply it, but actually see it in our own situation, that we have been set free from slavery to sin. God brings us through the waters of baptism. And we're on our way to his promised land in the new creation. But we're not there yet, which means where are we? <laughs> we are in the wilderness. And what do we do in the wilderness? We learn how to obey God. We learn how to be his people. And we learn how to depend on God. And so in the very first line of the book, I say, you will never get out of the wilderness. Stop trying. And what I mean is, in this life, the defining dynamic is wilderness. You are living a wilderness-themed life. And so that's important. It's important to embrace that because I find that so many of the anxieties and frustrations and things that just wear people out come from, even for Christians, 
attempts to escape the wilderness. Like, how can I make my life more comfortable? How can I make this not so difficult? And rather than resisting the wilderness, I think it's far healthier to embrace it as the place where God meets you and then learn how to depend on him. Mm. Okay. So with that model of the wilderness, like I know that you talk a lot about the role of habits in that wilderness experience. Could you share with us about that? Sure thing. So I think habits is, is probably just a more accessible and helpful word than an old, dry, dusty word like liturgies. I wouldn't assume that every listener is familiar with the work of James K. Smith, but he is a, a Christian philosopher who's written a lot about cultural liturgies. And his, his kind of main idea is, look, every all of us are liturgical creatures. He calls us homo liturgicus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the idea is simply that we're creatures of habit and our cultures are have habits and rhythms built into them. And that's important because habits are what form us. They're what shape us. We, we are kind of the cumulative sum of our habits. And so I think it's so interesting that when the disciples want to pray and want to learn how to pray, Jesus gives them a very brief liturgy and the church throughout history adopted that as a habit. Like it's a daily habit for the individual. It's a weekly habit for the, for the congregation and our habits shape us. And so uh, if a metaphor you might use is something like the Lord's prayer is when you first begin praying it, it's like an exoskeleton that as you pray, it kind of becomes an internal skeleton. You want it to move from the outside to the inside. So you start praying the Lord's prayer with your mouth and you might believe the words you might not, you might know what the words mean. You might not, but As you deepen in your, not just understanding, but practice of praying the Lord's prayer, the idea is to get it inside of you, um, that it would, it would, you would internalize the Lord's prayer. It would become a part of who you are. You'd become a Lord's prayer shaped person and that that is going to enable you to navigate the wilderness more faithfully as a child of God. Yeah. I noticed that you talk about like the idea of keystone habits. I'm familiar with that from like Mm -hmm. Peter Drucker's stuff and other, other people have written on that, but yeah, maybe just share with our listeners, like how is prayer a keystone habit? Yeah. So if, if, if listeners will tolerate it, maybe I'll just, I'll share kind of an, an autobiographical story about that. So back in 2013, I'm working on my master divinity at Denver seminary. I'm living just a couple hours south of you. And I, on Monday evenings at 4 PM, I'm going to Jake's brew pub with three other guys. And we're talking about life and we're sort of trying to encourage each other week in and week out. And I was sharing with these guys, my frustration with my own inability to grow. I felt like I had just plateaued spiritually. And I'm sure a lot of people listening may have encountered a season of life like that. And I realized that up until that point in my life, my game plan for spiritual growth was just to read more books and listen to more sermons. Like if I can just get more Christian content into me, then I'll, then I'll grow spiritually. And seminary is a great little case study in proving how that doesn't work (laughs) because you've got more content coming in than ever before. And yet this feeling of being disconnected from God and drying up spiritually and not feeling like you're, you're actually growing, even though you're learning lots of data about the Christian faith. And so 
I'm complaining to these guys and I'm kind of angsting and agonizing over my, you know, plight. And one of these guys very gently suggests that I, I try some of the ancient spiritual disciplines of the church. And he mentions fasting and he mentions solitude and silence. And he mentions praying liturgically. And I pushed back hard. And part of my pushback to him was, look, I, I don't want to do any of that stuff. That's just like rote stuff you do. I want to be authentic in my relationship with God. And I'll never forget it. One of these guys leans in and he delivers to me what I now think of as like the line where he leans in and he says, Dan, your authentic self is not that great. <laughs> and it just crystallized for me in this moment. What, what was on offer from the ancient historic church was spiritual formation from the outside in where you begin, you don't begin by wanting the right thing. You begin by recognizing that you don't want the right thing. And then you begin to adopt habits and practices. If you want to use the word liturgies, you can't like these rhythms that over time begin to turn your heart in a new direction. Some people listening may have, you know, maybe some of the listeners are married. I'm married and I know that it wouldn't be right for me to just say anything I'm thinking or feeling to my wife. Like, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. You'll mess up your relationship. There are days when I feel very loving towards my bride, who is a wonderful woman. And then there are days because of my own selfishness and pride where I'm not feeling very loving. And yet on those days, maybe even more importantly than the other days, I need to say things like, I love you. I care about you. Even if they are inauthentic in that moment, right? And I realized through the kindness of these friends who were sitting with me in that pub that my relationship with God was not so different, that I needed to begin, I needed my habits to lead my heart, that the human heart is kind of like a diesel engine in the dead of winter. Mm. It's cold. It's hard to get going. <laughs> and practices and habits like, you know, praying the Lord's prayer regularly can kind of like get your heart going even when it feels cold and dead. Yeah, that's really, really good. I like that idea of the authentic self because I, I hear so much talk lately about this idea of like discovering your authentic self and like revealing mm. it. And I'm like, I just, I just, this seems so foreign to scripture. Like uh, you got this idea from somewhere. I'm pretty sure it's not from the Bible. And yeah, I just think it's like people are, you know, writing books about how to discover your authentic self. And I'm just like, maybe my, I'm, I'm with that guy who's like, Hey, your authentic self, my authentic self's not that great. Like let's have a Christ formed, right? Cruciform self instead. So yeah. Next question I wanted to ask you was, was really this one. This might be our last one, but I want to ask you, so what, in what ways do you think that the Lord's prayer is subversive, right? So you're talking about how mm. it's like water that can wear away granite. It's seeds that can plant something which will sprout up later in fruit and, and beautiful things. But like, so in what ways is the Lord's prayer subversive to our culture and to our, if you will, authentic selves? Sure. Yeah. Gosh, good question. So I'm, I might begin by just maybe describing what I mean when I use the word subversive, because at least in the circle that I'm coming from, subversive is just not a word that that pops up very often. And when we hear that word subversive, I think 
at least I think what comes to mind for many people is, you know, like Cold War era spies or like terrorist cell groups. It, it just, it seems devious. Mm. It seems sneaky and, and, and just kind of nefarious. Like it's mm. not good. It's a bad thing. Like no good person would be subversive. And yet I would offer just based on the life and ministry of Jesus. And I think the gospel itself is subversive. What it shows us is that subversion is actually the most powerful method of transformation. You could think about a couple different ways of that we all that we all tend to confront, you know, an obstacle or something that needs to change. There's what I call the defensive posture, which is I encounter something I don't like and I immediately retreat. I circle the wagons, I kind of huddle up. And I think sometimes Christians, sometimes even whole congregations or even whole denominations can adopt a defensive posture in regards to culture or society or anything that seems to threaten faith. And then um, contrary to that, there's more of a, a passive posture where you encounter an obstacle and you just kind of immediately surrender to it. You just, it's kind of the go with the flow mentality. And I think individual Christians and sometimes whole churches and congregations can adopt a passive posture where it's like whatever the latest trend is, we're going to get on board with that. And we're going to use words like relevance to justify just kind of going along with whatever the culture is doing. And then a third method would be a, a, what I would call aggressive. So defensive, passive, and then aggressive, which is I meet an obstacle and I immediately want to conquer it. And this is, this is kind of more of the culture war mentality where, you know, an individual Christian or a congregation encounters something in culture or society that it doesn't like. And it kind of says, okay, like we got to go out and beat that thing. We have to, we have to win. And when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus is constantly encountering obstacles, whether it's people or institutions or establishment that is against him. And he doesn't adopt any of those postures. Jesus is not defensive. He's not passive and he's not aggressive. And so you look at the life and ministry of Jesus and you go, how does Jesus confront obstacles and problems that are that are hostile to him and i would suggest that more often than not the posture that jesus adopts is one of subversion i think about this with the parables that jesus tells where parables are these like delightful little stories that are internally consistent there's like an internal logic to the parables which means that they're they're kind of obviously true the problem is you end up believing in the in the truthfulness of the parable before you realize it applies to you. Yeah. So you can hear Jesus tell, tell, tell a parable and you think to yourself like, that's a brilliant story, that's so good. But then the more you think about it, the more you realize, hang on a minute, this actually says something to me. Right. But now I find myself in the very uncomfortable position of believing something that is not true about me. Like Jesus has swept my legs. Like I've been subverted yeah. by the story. I see this in... A lot of Jesus's interactions with people where he's, he's constantly asking, people will come to him with a question to stump him. He'll just, he'll just respond very gently with a different question mm -hmm. that completely turns the tables on them. It's not defensive or aggressive or passive. It's just, it's like pulling the rug out. It just kind of subverts the whole thing. And I think the clearest example we have of, of subversion is... Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. So, you know, Jesus is God incarnate. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity in the flesh. And Satan seeks to put Jesus to death. 
And Jesus uses death to undermine both Satan and death itself on the cross by allowing himself to be killed. It's like, it's like spiritual judo. Like judo is that form of martial art where you don't, if you're using judo, you don't beat someone by punching them. You beat them when they try to punch you and you grab their hand and pull them. Like that's what Christ is doing on the cross. And if we are to be people who adopt the posture and the way of Jesus and the way of the gospel in our everyday lives, that it means we're going to be adopting a subversive posture, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean we're undermining people like to, to wreck their lives. It means we're actually undermining what is evil mm-hmm. and replacing it with something that is good. Yeah. So like with the Lord's prayer, it's subversive in nature. And the fact that we, if we pray it and we pray it and perhaps corporately or individually, right? As we're praying it, there are subversive elements. So for example, your kingdom come, as you mentioned earlier, implies that my kingdom must leave. And I'm not praying for my kingdom to come. I'm praying for his kingdom to come. It shapes my mind. It shapes my thoughts, etc. as you go on. Okay. So your will be done, right? Again, implied is not my will, but your will. I'm submitting myself to you. And so I can see how you're saying that. I mean, are there any other points in the prayer that you would point out that are really subversive to maybe our mm. fleshly way of being or our, you know, the the culture at large's way of conducting itself? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I would say the probably the the main idea of the book is that every single line of the Lord's prayer is subversive, but in a beautiful way, in a gospel way. It takes our assumption and our expectation, and it doesn't just punch us in the face and tell us we're wrong. The Lord's Prayer is not a theological debate. The Lord's Prayer is theological subversion. It invites you to pray something, and in praying it, invites you to be transformed by the gospel. And so I even just think about the first word of the Lord's Prayer, our. And if you pause and think about it, that's such a strange way to start. Because most of us tend to approach God in a fairly kind of private, personal, individualistic way. And yet that word our immediately reframes all of prayer as communal. Like this is a family conversation. There is no private access to God that doesn't include sibling relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even that first word confronts me in a gentle way. Mm -hmm. And, and forces me to reframe what it even means to pray to God, that I can't just come to God as an isolated individual. I only come to God as my father, as someone who is a sibling amongst other siblings in the family. Yeah, that's really good. Well, Dan, I just want to say thank you for that. And where can people find your book? So I, I'm pretty sure it's available wherever books are sold. You can buy it directly from the publisher, which is Moody. I think it's also available on Amazon and christianbooks.com and Barnes and & Noble and everything else. But yeah, cool. and if all that doesn't work, just email me and I'll send you a copy. Sounds good. Yeah, so Liturgy in the Wilderness by Dan Murata. Thanks again, Dan, for, have, for being on the program and thanks for sharing Nick, all that stuff. Thank you so much and thanks for all the good work that you're doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic that you'd like to learn more about, there is a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G.
Make sure to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are posted, they'll be delivered right into your podcast app. If this episode was helpful, please share it with others. And if you'd like to support this podcast, the best way you can do that is by leaving a written review on the Apple Podcast app. That really helps boost this show in their ratings. So if you do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless you.